Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. It's The Wonky Show. We're talking about the size and shape of the sector, generative AI and neurodiversity in a sector. It's all coming up. Letting students know um, what it's likely to be like when they pitch up at their halls of residence so they've got more advanced warning and having spaces to go where it's quiet. Um, these, I think, would be um, changes that would be uh, good for all students. And that made me reflect on this difficult balance that needs to be struck between mainstreaming these Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news policy analysis. I'm Wonky's editor-in-chief, Mark Leach, and joining me to thread the needle of higher education this week are three brilliant guests as always. In East London, it's Nicola Dandridge, Professor of Practice and Higher Education Policy at University of Bristol. Nicola, your hire to the week, please. I think it probably was chairing a panel that was uh, judging essays to commemorate uh, Jonathan Nichols, who was the registrar at various places in the sector and who tragically died last year. And in commemoration of him, um, AHUA and various groups put together a competition to um, invite essays to celebrate Jonathan and uh, we were judging the fantastic essays um, earlier this week it was a really good thing to do some really good essays as well actually hmm, let's give them a read even further in East London it's uh, Joe Cooper uh, Director of People and Culture at the University of East London Joe your heart of the week please hi Mark yeah on Monday I had a rare opportunity to spend an entire day with the leaders of uh, all of our academic schools and professional services areas talking about the progress we've made at East London and thinking about the challenges of the future. It's quite, quite rare we get that amount, amount of time to really kind of think about the future and spend some time with each other. It was a really rewarding day. And don't write in. I know we're London-centric today. Uh, in North London is Debbie McVitie, editor of Wonky. Debbie, your heart of the week. Um, well, yesterday I had one of those really fantastic meetings um, that, you some, that you sometimes kind of manage to carve a bit of time out in your schedule to do. And I was speaking to a colleague at the University of Hull where they're um, in the process of implementing a, a new curriculum framework, a competency-based curriculum framework. And then um, if you are excited about that kind of thing, as I am, um, these conversations where you get to sort of see what's happening on the ground and um, think about how universities are transforming learning and teaching, um, I just left really kind of feeling really, really positive about, um, about that and, and what's going on there. Um, and if you want to hear more, do come to, to Education Espresso, our uh, regular event on Pedagogy with Adobe on the 4th of April. More on the site. Now, we start the week with the new shape and size of the higher education sector after some new stats uh, come out this week. Debbie, talk us through it. Right. So this is the HESI stats, the Higher Education Students Early Statistics, um, which is the in-year data that is provided, about student numbers that is provided to uh, OFS. Um, and which has historically been submitted to to the regulators, so that so that you know bits of funding that relate to different different student groups can be allocated. So it's not the same as HESA data, which we get a year later, but it gives us a really kind of good indication of the kind of shape and size of the sector, kind of in in real time, um, based on a census that is taken um, on the first of December in the academic year. So there's uh, lots of content on the site about this, but the kind of headlines that have come out is about uh, the changing shape and size of the sector. So Jim and DK have pulled out some some key things. One is is about the kind of enormous expansion in postgraduate taught numbers, um, and that is you know lots of universities are, are are trying to recruit postgraduate taught international students. Um, 
you know, in, in part because of the fee freeze at undergraduate level and and and, uh, and and kind of the need to the need the need to make the numbers add up, um, and you know, in, in part for all the kind of very good very good reasons why you might otherwise in, uh, recruit those students. Um, uh, but, but but the consequence of that is that, is that you know the sector is now thirty percent postgraduate, um, and that uh, I think that sort of raises raises questions about. Um, uh, you know, but, but, but what what should be done about that? The other thing, of course, is is about the kind of ra- the rapid shift in in, in numbers. Is, you know, so, so, some providers change. You know, growing numbers very, very quickly, so other providers shrinking, um, and you know, and, and the kind of knock on impacts on, on quality and so on. Right. So, Nicola, these big swings of numbers um, probably not a great surprise, given the kind of market forces and and pressures on 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 the on the, uh, the, the full time undergraduate. Uh, fee in particular um but it is it is going to change the shape of of the sector isn't it yeah not not a huge surprise but nonetheless the scale is quite uh, significant and i think you know clearly there's nothing wrong about expansion of particularly postgraduate taught students there's there's an increasing need for that degree of expertise i think where i'd have concern is whether where where the um numbers suggest there's a huge hike in students and it then asks it begs questions about the quality of the teaching that they're receiving and so where you've got domestic students being paid replaced by postgraduates um, by international students sorry where you've got domestic students being replaced by international students that may not be um, a bad thing it depends on the scale and it where i think we would have concerns i would have concerns is if the numbers are just exponentially going up very suddenly and you wonder whether the capacity is there to support them. Mm, yeah, I mean, that capacity point is crucial, isn't it, Joe? I mean, uh, you know, from student support to, to, ev- to really anything any you, can, you can think of, if you're, gonna, if you're going to increase numbers of any sort that dramatically in one year or, or frankly lose them, actually, in, the, in, in other cases, that's going to have an impact on, on, on everything that happens on campus, right? Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, as Nicholas said, it's it's not a surprise that given the real terms value of the of, of the tuition fee and, and the market factors that universities have had to look at new opportunities for for growth and diversification, that, that, and that's to kind of help sustainability and to kind of support quality. But uh, there are a number of different approaches that universities have taken. If you look at the numbers, and I think David has pointed this out in his blog, there's there's growth in some. Um, uh, uh, so some areas with international postgraduate students. Other other universities have chosen different paths in terms of going um, entering into third party uh, uh, arrangements with um, um, with with other with other providers. So w- whatever path is chosen, it's really crucial that um, it's linked to a, a a clear strategy and it's a sustainable plan that's supported by by resources because it needs to be able to support growth in quality not not cut away to Nicholas point so you know, at, at the University of East London we've thought really hard about what our, our strategy is we we want to be a, a local organization a local anchor but we also want to connect that to a, a global uh, education and skills ecosystem and we've also got a really specific objective linked to that to, to significantly grow the proportion of our international students so because we've planned it um, it enables us to think about capacity to bring the right resources in to s- support it, and that then benefits all parts of the of the student community. So, to do that in a planned manner is really, really important, um, and that has, really has a positive positive impact. On a, on a side point, what we've seen, one of the one of the really nice things we've seen as a result of the recent growth we've had, and certainly comparing it to uh, the COVID days, is that you can really see. Uh, the diversity and the vibrancy uh, on on the campus community it, it could really add to that broad 
um, student experience. So I think it, it is, it is you know, this growth is for the sector is a necessity. I think there are real concerns if it's not done in a planned and managed way, uh, but can actually lead to real benefits, not just for the students that we're bringing in, um, but for the more traditional students as well. I mean, I think Joe's right. We shouldn't assume that universities aren't doing this in a planned and managed way. I don't think like the default should be, uh, you know, what are you, what are you kind of, what are you trying to pull a crafty one here? Because, uh, so, so, but, but it is also true, true to say, I think that it would be, if, if that was not happening, it would be quite hard to know about it. And it would be quite before, you know, before it was too late. If you think about, you know, your average, inter, you know, international postgraduate taught, um, you know, there's very little regulatory infrastructure around the postgraduate education anyway. You know, there's no, post, there's no postgraduate NSS. There's no kind of, there's no monitoring of outcomes. Um, and even less so in the kind of international space. So, you know, if, I suppose the question that is, is whether, Given the kind of scale of this, it, it may, it then becomes necessary to ask, to kind of almost make a, make a presumption that, it, you know, or, 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 you know, how, how could, you know, how would it be appropriate to kind of be, be, be secure that, that this is, that, you know, that all, all of that planning and, and resourcing that you would expect to happen actually is happening. And to what extent is that a necessary thing for a regulator to do? Mm, yeah, well, this, 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 this gets to the heart of it. I mean, Nicola, the, you know, RFS specifically doesn't have, uh, powers to regulate over kind of the market. It doesn't have any kind of market measures, you know, I guess student number controls or tolerance bans or any, anything like that. Um, and, um, you know, that wasn't, that's, that wasn't the intention for how RFS was set up. But, but do you think, but is that, you know, it, surely there's going to become a point where, you know, the data, you know, there's big enough change at an individual provider that, you know, somewhere on, you know, the mega dashboards, it starts flashing and someone at RFS says, well, maybe we need to go and have a look over there, particularly if where a lot, lot of this stuff happens, you know, in, in franchise provision and, um, you know, possibly, I, th I think what I'm saying is it's possible even to do in providers not on the RFS register, right? But look, there's a lot of, I, I think the RFS is, is, is very aware of the vulnerability of postgraduate talk, particularly um, students that come over for one year. Um, but precisely as Debbie said, because there is no NSS for postgraduates and there's no, um, it, it's much harder to, to get a sense of what's going on simply because of the duration of the courses. But I think OFS is very conscious of this and it does have regulatory responsibilities for these students. So I think um, if there are sort of certain warning signs, like a yeah, sudden increase in postgraduate taught numbers going up, particularly from um, maybe one country and um, it, it has all, all the powers it needs really to go and have a look and see what's going on. I mean, the other side of it we haven't talked about is if you've got large numbers of international students coming from one country, that's a huge sort of fina financial vulnerability, potential risk. And I think that's another concern that we all need to have as to whether or not the sector is setting up a financial model that's not going to be long term sustainable. Yeah, and we've talked about this a bit on the show in recent months uh, as well, because um, the Home Office is certainly um, aware of what's going on. Because you know the the, the migration, is, you know, this is reflected in the migration stats, um, and there are some particular countries and regions that they are worried about, um, and you know, particularly where students are bringing dependents on a, on a large scale, which is you know, changing is changing migration patterns in the UK um, quite significantly, as well as it's changing the makeup of universities. So that's latest we've heard, there's been a bit of a row about, you know, how to how that is going to be cracked down upon if, if it is. But 
you know, I think that one of the things the sector's going to have to look out for, isn't it, Debbie, is, is, is government action, if not regulatory action. Yes, and, and I think um, it's it, it's interesting that you know, although lots of lots of you know uh, shots of shots have been fired, but but no actual policy has has come has come um, has come come out of um, out of government as yet on this kind of I guess sort of cracking down or, or restrictions. I do think I do think that the way. The way it gets, you know, the way it gets talked about is very unfortunate because, you know, obviously international education is 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 a really positive thing, and this is a question about sort of saying how can we bring international students, kind of, you know, you know, bring bring them here in in uh, you know very above board ways, close any kind of loopholes that 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 could you know tempt tempt those to take advantage of what should be a kind of open and generous system and all the rest of it. Um, you know, this sort of language of, of cracking down and restriction is 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 really just is incredibly unhelpful. But I think even though the the part of the problem here, though, of course, is is that you know, it, even if it is just sabre rattling and there's no policy, the sabre rattling itself is unhelpful. It, it poses a risk because it poses a risk to the international reputation. It makes it very hard for universities to plan in a meaningful way, and actually, it kind of creates that sort of temptation to sort of fill your boots while the filling is good, rather than kind of you know make a long term kind of you know sustainable growth plan. I, th- I think that's right, Debbie. I think it also al- almost suggests that universities aren't thinking very carefully about this themselves. Because um, obviously that um, diversification and sustainability is absolutely fundamental to you know to to, to the growth and the of the future of the of the sector. And I just point out it's not a new problem either. You know, I've, I've um, worked in other institutions where there have been concerns around the, you know the, how diverse the income streams are. I know some universities have had to have a long think about their uh, reliance on uh, Chinese postgraduate students when COVID hit. So it is something that universities are continually thinking about. So I think. You you're right the suggestion that the only solution to this or the only people thinking about this or the regulators or the government is far from the truth i think i think i think the franchising model is quite interesting as well and sort of can often get quite lost because actually a lot a, a lot of the franchise provision will also be international because of the nature of some of these these relationships um you know if, you, if you're you know if you're if you're fr- franchising in a in london for example if you're if you're a provider that's not in london a lot of you know a lot of the students that you, you know will, will, will be recruited will be may, may, may be international as well but I think there's, you know, it's it, it's always been a kind of, I guess, challenge for the sector to set up the kind of kind of deep, sustainable relationships with franchise partners that, in which that, you know, they the the, the kind of the, the you know the, the licensing provider, as it were, is can be really, really sure that everything is is sort of exactly as it should be, that quality is being delivered. Um, you know, it 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 continues to be, I think, an area of risk and weakness, um, in. You know, because you, especially especially if you have an awful lot of franchising partners, which is the mm. case with some providers. Mm. And we're told that OFS is going to look at that in more detail next year. So this is where sort of the 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 two the two kind of the two, the two risks <laughs> intermingle. The kind of the, the 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 change in your size and shape, and and also your your, your franchise position, um, franchise provision rather. Um, that's going to be an interesting investigation. I would have thought. Now let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hello, my name's Smita Jamdar and I'm partner and head of education at Shakespeare Martinhoe. This week I've blogged for Wonky on the OFS's consultation on its approach to charging fees for investigations. As is often the case, I have no real objection to the proposal to charge fees for investigations, but I do have some problems with how the OFS has set out its approach to doing so. Uh, In particular, I don't think there's enough safeguards in the consultation to ensure that uh, its fees are limited to what it is reasonable to recover, which is what the 
uh, underpinning regulations that give it the power to recover fees required. I don't think there's enough assurance that it will only investigate as a last resort and where it's reasonably necessary to do so. And I've set out in the blog some thoughts on how the approach could be improved and made fairer. OFS will uh, make decisions to request information or make recommendations simply to recover its fees. Okay, it's been another massive couple of weeks for AI and its developments, um, leading to some soul-searching questions in higher education. Nicola, can you walk us through it? Yeah, there's been a huge amount of interest and um, apprehension, actually, about the pace of development of new AI technologies, um, generative AI, which um, draw on existing databases to generate uh, human, human-like human content. Um, and the thing is, this is just moving so fast. So um, I know wonky podcasts have previously covered um, chat GPT, but that um, has now been significantly upgraded by its uh, manufacturers to the new chat GPT-4 and, and eradicated a few of the blips and made it much sort of faster and more powerful. And then we've also got um, the Google's chatbot called Bard, which is coming on stream. I tried to get onto it, actually. There's a huge waiting list. Um, and that hit the headlines a few few weeks back, actually, when it was launched because there was some error in the... Um, error in the actual podcast that launched it, which caused a bit of controversy, which I think demonstrates one of the risks in these things. Um, And then we've got Microsoft with Copilot, um, which is intriguing. That's going to be embedded in the Microsoft um, applications and will um, allow amazing sort of facilities to uh, join up all the existing data and and generate speeches and um, PowerPoints and really kind of quite amazing. Anyway, so what does all this mean for the higher education sector? Well, I mean, this has to just have a transformative effect on the curriculum because all students, all of us, but students in particular, are going to have to know how to navigate, to be sceptical, to how to know how to use this sort of stuff. Immensely powerful, immensely positive, um, but it's going to require upskilling. But then, and also, it's going to enable personalization of learning. So I think, you know, real positives there. The negatives, though, and this is what's hit the headline, is is the the, the ability for um, students and others to use this to um, plagiarize um, in terms of their of essays and um, exams, and very difficult to detect that. So there's a lot of soul searching in the sector about that, and also just a capacity issue about um, for university staff to adapt the curriculum. And and then just it's moving so fast. You know, can we keep up with this? Both the positives and the negatives. I was thinking actually, my final comment on this that we were talking about the HECU's data. I mean, that's where. Um, facilities like Copilot would be so brilliant. You could just press a button and ask for, you know, what are the three top trends in this data set? And it comes up with it. I mean, that, that sort of thing will be amazing if it's reliable and yeah. not abused. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, yeah, I think in, fa- in summary, Debbie, we've got a a bit of a bulge here in terms of kind of capacity, in, in terms of the changes that can need to be made, in terms of the kind of strategic level thinking that universities are going to have to do, but possibly leading us to a very interesting place once once we're through that. But I guess, you know, what what's going to have to happen, you know, what does this journey look like now, where, you know, to get to that, to get to the sunny uplands? Oh, I mean, I think part of the sort of, I, 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 I suspect that a lot of kind of higher education colleagues sort of feel like I feel about it, which is, is that it's, 
I, I really, really want to feel like I'm across it and I feel like I'm not across it. And that is a bit scary, uh, particularly for someone who kind of is, is, his job is, relates to being about being across things. Um, I think so. I think that I think there's going to have to be a bit of a kind of, you know, we all just need to educate ourselves on what it can do. And then we need to think really, really carefully about what that means in practice, because a lot of the things that it can do right now. So like, for example, I think, you know, I asked ChatGPT3 a few weeks ago, tell me about the kind of, you know, the key developments in uh, technology enhanced learning. And it spat out, you know, an extremely sort of, I guess, extremely pedestrian. Had I been being assessed on, you know, if I was using it for an essay, you know, it would it would not have given me a kind of, you know, a high quality answer, you know, you know, evidencing kind of independent creative thought. But if I was writing a university policy that said, you know, what, what do we need to make sure that, you know, what are the boxes that we need to make sure we've ticked um, in this area, um, you know, where we're kind of thinking about this, uh, it, that would actually have been really, really useful. So, you know, it's it's kind of, I think, taking a kind of measured approach to what, what are the things that we do right now, you know, as Nicholas pointed about kind of data analysis is, is, is one too, that could, it could really just help move us forward. What's it going to be likely to be able to do in the future? And that's where we sort of, there needs to be a bit more of a dialogue, I think, between the kind of tech futurists who are kind of in, perhaps in a little bit of a siloed conversation, particularly in higher education, where you sort of get sort of enthusiasts kind of, you know, hived off in, into, into their areas. And so that, that conversation is going to have to disseminate out into the kind of mainstream. And that's going to, I think, change the kind of nature of that conversation as well. Um, and, you know, and, and then, and then I think, it, you know, there's going to have to be quite a lot of, uh, just people kind of practicing, you know, just using the tech, um, and, you know, so, so that, it, so that it becomes kind of mainstream and second nature. And some of that, you know, and, and, you know, we, we've seen this with other technologies. Some of this sort of happens kind of to some extent by itself, uh, just because people start using it. Um, and, and, you know, and, and, and I guess sort of, and try not to panic and, and, and try and keep an open and open and curious mind rather than a kind of, uh, panic, you know, we must shut down, we must put up boundaries and barriers kind of, kind of approach to this. Hmm. I mean, Joe, one of, one of the interesting things is, is how, um, you know, a lot of this is going to happen unilaterally. So with, you know, Microsoft rolling Copilot into Office 365, which, you know, many, if not most universities subscribe to in some form. Um, we talked about Bard going into, um, Google, although that certainly looks, um, much 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 less developed product the point is it's going to it's just going to appear there and it's going to start offering <laughs> offering options which could be really brilliant like nicola says in terms of you know let's analyze the data in the in the, in the spreadsheet make that powerpoint presentation based on a you know a few bullet points or you know notes of, of a team meeting um but i guess you know how uh when it's happening to everyone unilaterally you know how how are we going to kind of establish the norms of of practice inside inside the university and um you know what's that what does that conversation look like that's a it's a really good question it is going to happen really quickly and particularly the co-pilot um uh, announcement and knowing how quickly teams got integrated into universities because it was part of the of the ecosystem that we use uh, is a good example of that and it, you know it's moving so quickly i actually thought last night about whether i could get chat gbt to write my comments for this section but then i realized that it's already an old hackneyed trick that loads of people have done that's how quickly it's moving but i, I think we should take some comfort in the fact that if we sort of think about the past 20 years nobody talks about um what higher education used to be like and say wasn't it great when you used to have to kind of search for a dusty book in the library or wait for the delivery of a journal so you could get hold of the knowledge that they need nobody nobody thinks like that if you think about how things have changed so significantly over the past 20 years i think it gives us some comfort that 
um, the sector, students, academics are are, are able to kind of um, embrace and and support and, and make the most of the of the changes. Although it does seem to be go, happening at a, an increasing um, pace. Obviously, you need to think about how it affects teaching and learning. Um, uh, there's some kind of really difficult questions, like you know, would it be more effective for for, for AI to to complete the marking of assessments? Would that be quicker and would that be more more consistent? But actually, what what does, how does that affect the relationship between uh, the assessor and uh, uh, or, or lecturers and the students? Could we be in a situation where you've got one AI, one AI detecting whether uh, an essay has been written by a different AI? So there's some really kind of complicated, weird questions that are are, are going to come up. I think it's also going to affect how we how we um, work in professional uh, services and support universities as well. Um, so to, to, to Nicola's point, actually, one of the things I think universities struggle with is, is actually taking our data, external data, and trying to make some meaning out of it and try and make sure that kind of really affects our strategic thinking. So that could have a, have a huge um, um, effect on that. So I think, you know, it won't just affect the roles we have in the future. It'll affect how we operate. It will affect the courses we need to deliver. I think, Mark, you wrote about the fact that, you know, um, uh, you can draw up a, a sketch of a, of a website and an AI can kind of deliver that for you. Um, so we don't think we're going to need courses in web design anymore. But we also think about the skills that we need to kind of uh, provide students with in order to succeed in the course, but also to then be uh, employable. So we've mentioned PowerPoint. I remember when I did my MBA, a large part of that was actually how do you turn information into a presentable format, but uh, Copilot can apparently do that now in, in, in seconds. So um, th there are risks there, but reducing some of the effort that goes into this work does enable us to focus on knowledge development, debate, understanding the human implications of the knowledge um, um, that we become aware of and practically applying it in the real world. So I think if we embrace those changes, it's really exciting for the sector. I think I think there's something for me about about the risk of homogeneity. I think one of the things that, because I think one of the ways that AI tends to work is because it looks at kind of what generally is true <laughs> and then kind of, and then reproduces that. So, you know, when it's, you know, we could find that all of our PowerPoint presentations look, look very similar. All of our websites look very similar. And I think so, I think there's always going to be a need to understand the kind of fundament. And I think one of the things that you hear at the minute is people kind of talking about as if there's a real intelligence behind this technology, as if there's almost like, oh, I, I don't know how this thing knew that I was asking it this and that and that. And of course it didn't know. It was just kind of, you know, it was just, it's just ones and zeros behind it. So, it, we we do kind of collectively need to understand what's going on behind the magic so that when we ask it to do something, we then are empowered to reject the answer or, or amend the answer or update the answer so that we are kind of able to bring some creativity to that, I think, you know. Um, and that you know that that's where I think it gets quite interesting in in kind of you know what is knowledge production and and you know what 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 is creativity and how do we kind of how do we kind of develop and assess that in students? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and 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 the shape of the economy as well. So you know if, if you know universities uh, you know might have to think about it's not, it's it's not just are some courses redundant or not? You know you know whole whole professions according to the the latest um, latest literature might become redundant. Although although there's, that's that's also been criticized and, and heavily caveated um the point is things are going to change um but universities need to be at the the forefront of this I, i'm i'm excited but i'm i'm also nervous i mean you know james our uh, operations uh, person at wonky i mean we're a, you know we're a small business and a small team um and we're actually enormously excited in terms of those things you're talking about joe in, in terms of efficiency we reckon that about 40 percent of um of what he does can be 
automated by AI and with the tools available today, which is enormously exciting because it's not that, you know, his job's going to be replaced. It means that there's more time to do more interesting, more creative things, you know, help develop the business, uh, you know, do more cool stuff. Um, so it's, it's um, you know, it's it's the possibilities. They just seem almost endless. But in some, in some ways, it's not the people actually, it's not, it's not, it's not the students of higher education you need to worry about. It's all those people who, who don't go to higher education, who, who you know, who, who have traditionally done jobs that don't require an awful lot of creativity. Um, and... You know, and whether I guess is sort of hollowing out of the labour market, where you've got people, you know, people at one end doing very low-paid, kind of very manual work, and people at the other end doing very highly-paid professional creative work, and that's where I think there's, you know, we're probably going to see some some negative impacts here as well. Definitely, and yes, like any major development that happens um, in an unplanned, patchy way, um, the winners and losers and inequalities tend to get exacerbated, don't they? Um, Speaks to the need for more people to access higher education. Now, we're going to talk about all of these issues in a lot more depth at an event called uh, The Avalanche is Here. Uh, that's on the 19th of April uh, online. Join us uh, with a team of uh, experts and commentators with talking about how AI is going to impact on, on higher education um, and keeping this conversation going because I think it's a really interesting one. Um, just the changes that are happening and the thinking going on this year. Uh, that's before we even fast forward for the next five years. So um, join us on the 19th of April for The Avalanche is Here. Uh, and remember, don't panic. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Now, there's new research into uh, neurodiversity in higher education. Debbie, walk us through that, please. So last week, it was Neurodiversity Celebration Week. Um, there was a report out from Unite Students exploring the needs of neurodivergent students um, in the transition to university, as well as while they're living in student accommodation. Um, and it's looking at uh, the ways that neurodivergent students ex- sort of experience the world around them and, the, and, and particularly the ways that often university systems are uh, you know, des- designed for neurotypical people. So it's looking at things like um, the environment um, and how that can kind of sometimes be you know, very challenging in a sensory way for people who are autistic or have um, ADHD, for example. Um, so it's really kind of, I think it's really interesting to see uh, this, you know, this, I think you know, there's been a lot of attention to neurodiversity lately, and and that that of you know, and right, rightly is sort of filtering into higher education, and it's really helping, I think, neurotypical people understand the kind of the the, the scale of the difference of of how neurodiverse people um, experience the world around them, and, and that can only be helpful. Um, and Sunday, Blake uh, uh, from Team Monkey has written on the site about uh, about kind of. Uh, about building understanding between the neurotypical and the neurodiverse. And we have um, also a number of uh, colleagues from higher education writing about their own experience of neurodiversity. So there's loads of interesting stuff to dive into there. Right, so lots here. Joe, um, you're 
the director of people. So uh, I'm, I'm guessing I'm guessing this is this has come up um, at UEI. I'm just interested in what your approach is, particularly well, start start with start with staff. Yeah, well, I, I think reading the report, I've read it through the lens of thinking about kind of our responsibility to staff and what we need to do in order to um, support um, neurodivergent staff. And what's really interesting when you read a report like this is that it it kind of because it kind of synthesizes all these um, experiences and um, they're shared in a really useful well, uh, way it provides you with these insights which are really quite practical and almost quite obvious when you read them but you hadn't really thought about them before um, so I really reflected on some of the um, experiences in terms of the physical environment and making me think about you know how does a work how does a physical working environment provide the opportunities for for neurodivergent staff to thrive and, and contribute so uh, Part, part, you know, you have to, obviously you have to think about the working environment in terms of how people work and you know how how we plan our activities and how we communicate and how we build communities and understanding. But actually, what I read in the report were there are some really practical things like if the if the working environment is noisier or if there are flashing lights or things that don't work that can can be a real real barrier. So uh, it made me really think about um, what we need to do about the physical working environment as well as the the, the more broader kind of um, community that we uh, that we we look to support at UEL. One of the things that's interesting about neurodiversity is, is it present, prevent, presents in very different ways. Even people who, you know, who both have a diagnosis of ADHD, their ADHD may manifest in different ways. So, um, you know, to what extent can universities kind of respond at that scale when you've got these very kind of individualistic um, presentations of, 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 of disability in that way? Well, one of the things that struck me about reading this report, it's a really good report, by the way, was the... Um, as Joe said, it's sort of the practicability of many of the recommendations. And when I was reading them through, I was thinking, well, these would be good for for everyone, really. So letting students know um, what it's likely to be like when they pitch up at their halls of residence so they've got more advanced warning and having spaces to go where it's quiet. Um, these, I think, would be um, changes that would be uh, good for all students. And that made me reflect on this difficult balance that needs to be struck between mainstreaming these sorts of changes so that um, students um, with different sorts of neurodiverse conditions feel um, comfortable and confident, um, uh, but not mainstreaming to such an extent that actually the particular needs of those groups of students are obliterated um, and I think that's always a challenge with um, different sorts of medical conditions and disabilities. How do you get the balance right between mainstreaming so it benefits everyone and it doesn't particularly draw attention to people with disabilities um, and yet how do you ensure there's a proper focus on people who have very distinct needs and without their needs being met, they're quite vulnerable and put at a disadvantage. And I think the thing about the report is it really tries to get that balance right. But I think answering your question, Debbie, about how do you accommodate such a wide diversity of, of symptoms and conditions, I think, I think the answer has to be, well, then you mainstream as many of these responses as you can to the benefit of everyone. I think another practical thing we can consider, and I was, I was reading Edward Mills' blog um, on the site, he's a lecturer with autism, and his ex experience is based on a late diagnosis. So it's some really interesting work that he's done to try and sort of present the university experience in the way that would have really helped him uh, when he joined university, but he, he, wasn't, um, a, a, he didn't have a diagnosis at that point. 
So I wonder if there's work that we can do around identification and diagnosis for students. So actually, the sort of, um, universities can help them uh, understand their own needs and communicate them effectively, um, not least because, and I've got some personal experience of this, um, we may well be um, receiving students who don't have an effective diagnosis because I know that the current, certainly in my local area, the current wait for a um, ADHD diagnosis through the school and NHS system is four years, um, which obviously is completely pointless when you think about the important developmental um, 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 stage that um, children are in when they're in secondary school. So we do need to kind of think about um, the role that we can play in helping students identify their own needs. Absolutely. And, and if, if you are a kind of a bright student, um, perhaps who um, has not presented in the kind of traditional way, you know, you've not, you've not, you know, you might, you might not have been disruptive in class, for example, but you, you know, um, then yes, the chance, the chances of you going undiagnosed um, are much higher. Um, and, and, and so, of course, you know, you may be sort of show, showing up with, um, you know, and, and the kind of, and, and you know, the, the, the amount of extra effort that you're putting into kind of essentially, essentially masking um, to to kind of to you know to to conform to conform to what is what is, what is seen as kind of appropriate learning behaviours, <laughs> maybe maybe really really immense. And I think so much this so much of this is coming out of the woodwork actually. And I think the other thing is really really important is is for you know to, to help neurotypical people understand that that this is not. Um, this isn't a fashion, you know. People aren't being fashionably, uh, you know, cl claiming to, to have ADHD. This, this, this is that you know our, our understanding collectively is increasing rapidly about uh, challenges that people have been experiencing for many, many years. Um, and it is really, really important that that, that you know that that conversation happens with you know on campuses with with, with an open mind and and with a sort of um, uh, you know a, a, a sense that this is a very important watershed moment in, in in progressing our collective understanding of what's going on here and there's there's enormous strengths of being neuro you know of being neurodivergent that you can bring an awful lot to the you know the you know a, 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 you know a classroom situation this is not about kind of def deficits or uh, it's about helping people overcome challenges I think that's absolutely right that you know the, the, the bit of real shift in the discourse from what I can see recently is about embracing the benefits of having neurodivergence across the student and the staff community and actually um, how, how that can really help um, organisations move forward, enhance the uh, university experience for everyone taking part as opposed to it being a deficit that, 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 they, um, that the individuals in the organisation have to get past. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget you can get the latest show automatically when it's out. Just search for The Wonky Show wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out about how we can keep you and your organisation ahead of everything that's going on in the UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So thanks very much to Nicola, Debbie, Joe and Michael Salmon that makes the show happen behind the scenes. We'll be back next week. Jim will be here. In the meantime, stay wonky. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.